Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 189. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Alexis Rohn Fancher, will be here in about 10 minutes. But before we get, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just did this. We love poetry, and I know you too, so please do click the like button and share, subscribe, ring the bell for notifications, leave reviews on iTunes and Spotify. Whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be greatly appreciated. Um, we always start out with a news poem, and we have uh, Ryan Boyland here today to talk about um, this poem uh, about Keith Olbermann and Angel Reese. And uh, here he is, Ryan Boyland. Hey, Ryan, how you doing? Hello. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Um, so to start, like, tell me about this. I think a lot of poets don't watch sports, so maybe have no idea what. And, and they might not even know that Keith Olbermann used to be on the desk of SportsCenter, where he was great until he became this, like, unhinged, um, I don't know, political commentator. But he, he was my favorite. It's so surreal to see him now because he was my favorite SportsCenter uh, broadcaster at the like 15 or 20 years ago whenever that was uh, but, mm-hmm. but tell us tell us about this uh we had a poem about the women's ncaa basketball um championship uh in caitlin on tuesday and now here's a second poem about um the the women's national basketball championship so so tell us what happened and um and and set up the poem for us yeah so uh i i don't follow keith olman all that closely today I am aware of his past as like a sports commentator, though. Um, so this poem is coming out of uh, last week's uh, women's national championship game where LSU beat Iowa. And um, a lot of people at the end of that game saw Angel Reese, one of the LSU players, um, kind of like celebrating in the face of Caitlin Clark. Um, and the response that Angel Reese gave was basically a reference to what Caitlin Clark had done the week before. And like, no disrespect to Caitlin Clark. Like she is a baller. She can, she, she does what she does very well. Um, and I think that what happens in athletics a lot of times, like people chirp, people talk, it happens, it's natural. Um, and most of the time it just kind of gets like skated over, like it's fine. And it's not really that big of a deal. Um, but a lot of people, after they saw Angel Reese do it, Angel Reese do something that Caitlin Clark had pretty much done exactly the same the week prior. Um, they were really berating her. They were calling her ghetto, a thug, really a lot of undue criticism. And Keith Olbermann was one of the people kind of like piling on. He called her an effing idiot. Um, and he got a little bit of a pushback from like Shaquille O'Neal, for example. And when... I kind of heard people getting upset about this. I'm like, why, why, why? Um, I think that we see it in male sports often. And so this kind of uh, like celebration this kind of like chirping. And so it felt a little bit unfair to one, criticize women for doing the same thing and two, to criticize a black woman uh, so harshly for doing the same thing. And so this poem kind of came out of that. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because it was um, like a counter to to Caitlin. I mean, Caitlin Clark had hit all the news too, you know, all week. It was like you know, Caitlin Clark. It was like she was going to de- you know destined to win, based on the mm-hmm. media headlines. And then you know she had made that gesture, and then to make it back after you beat her, it's just such a natural sports thing to do. And then to become a, even a cultural topic is you know shows a lot of what. Uh, you know the, the the subtext of a lot of what goes on within our culture, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so why don't you go ahead and read this poem? Uh, and Keith, I'll let you read the title because it's long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, questionable title choices on my part, but we're rocking with it. 
Keith Olbermann calls Angel Reese an idiot for celebrating in the face of Caitlin Clark. And I want her to do it again and again. I want him to wake up in a cold sweat with her name on his tongue, choke on each micro French tip finger. I want his daughter named Angel and his son named Reese. I want him to see tigers everywhere. I want the pump to read $102.85 every time he fills up, and I want him to know why. I was 11 when Don Imus, mouthful of tombstones, skin, cracked porcelain, called the Rutgers women's basketball team nappy-headed hoes, and I still don't think they buried him deep enough. When your only sin is being the best, which God do you pray to for forgiveness? They wanted to let Britney die for less than a gram. I can't be silent now. I mean, Keith, right now, somewhere in East Baton Rouge, a girl with skin the color of mahogany and cherry oak and ash is being told she's too dark to wear red. Keith, I don't remember the last time I heard a black girl's name in the news for anything other than dying. Keith, to be black and woman in America is to both birth the noose and teach it to tie itself around your neck. I am not asking for permission to celebrate, only that you recognize why she would. Keith, she can't be quiet when her disrespect was anything but. Keith, remember Angel, manicured hand pointing to finger, lungs full of the sweetest air, joyful, determined, alive. Yeah, great poem. Yeah, that was uh, Keith Olbermann calls Angel Reese an idiot for celebrating in the face of Caitlin Clark, and I want her to do it again. I'd say great title in the you know the Chinese tradition of those long titles that set the whole stage for for what's going on. But great poem. You know, I, I can't stand how annoying the news is, but it's so great we can turn it into you know interesting and important poetry. So thanks so much for writing that poem and for sharing it and for joining us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yep. Take care. That was Ryan Boland with uh, this week's poem. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest right now, um, Alexis Roan Fancher. So sit tight, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, tonight's guest on Rattlecast is Alexis Roan Fancher, longtime friend of Rattle. Um, Alexis, uh, her poem, When I Turned 14, My Sister... Her mother's sister took me to lunch and said, was chosen by Edward Hirsch for inclusion in the Best American Poetry 2016. Her poems in Flash Picture and published all over the place, 200 journals, including Rattle, a whole bunch of times. Um, her street photography is published worldwide as well. Since 2013, Alexis has been nominated 29 times for the Pushcart Prize, a whole bunch of other awards too. She's the author of, I don't think it's eight or nine books already. Her most recent is Brazen, which just came out from NYQ Press. And uh, here she is, Alexis Rohn Fancher. Hey, Alexis, how are you? I am well. How are you, Tim? I'm, you look been yeah, a while. I'm great. It has been a while. I remember um, my uh, my photo, author photo bio that when people asked me for a headshot was one you took for so long in your studio there in uh, <laughs> L.A. So thanks for that. That's one thing people should know is that Alexis is a great photographer as well as a uh, poet. And she does so many, you know, photo shoots with poets around Los Angeles. So if you if you see a photo of a Los Angeles poet, chances are pretty good it's Alexis's photo. Um, so so thanks for being here, Alexis. Uh, do you want to start out with a poem? I do. I'm going to start out. Um, I'm going to start out with a poem that uh, was published in Rattle a couple of years ago. It was written for my best friend Kate O'Donnell who passed away um, of breast cancer in 2014. Uh, it's called Tonight at Last Call. 
Jay calls me his brown liquor girl again. His voice, dark urgency, like when we were attached. I let him grip my hips, slow dance me back to that lust, to the parking lot, his car, my tube top, a trophy in one hand, a bottle of Southern comfort in his other. He pours that sweet Joplin down my throat, guides my hand between his legs, drives to the Malibu Motel with ocean views, vibrating beds, and once more, our delicious thrashing. Complimentary KY with a Gideon should be the insomniac waves rocking us long before my marriage and now after. When I ask him which part of me he loves best, Jay answers, what's missing? Tonguing the place where my nipple had been. He doesn't mind the mastectomy scar, the one my husband can't bring himself to touch. That was one of the poems from Brazen. Um, Tonight at Last Call, Jay calls me his brown liquor girl again. That's from Rattle, I think Rattle 63 maybe, or somewhere along those lines from Brazen. Uh, The newest book by Alexis Rowan Fancher. Um, Alexis, to start out, I'd just like to get sort of an overview of what poetry has meant to you over the years. Because you are a poet, you, you sort of came into poetry later, right? I mean, and then you sort of exploded with, I think you have like a book a year almost for the last 10 years or so. Um, and I don't know if it's true. I think your son having died had a lot to do with it, right? Or is that just a projection on my part? Um, it didn't away. It mm-hmm. didn't away. My son died of... Uh, a very rare cancer at the age of 26. And from that, I wrote a number of what I call the dead kid poems. Um, But my other hat, I would call it, is erotica, is very sexually charged poems. Um, I'm an equal opportunity lover. Uh, Men, women, always have been far before it was really, um, you know, Cache to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think I waited so long to write to him because I didn't have much to say. I was busy living. Mm-hmm. Uh, 99% of the material in these books is autobiographical. Um, I just wanted to really be ready. And, and once I, I studied with Jack Grapes uh, starting in 2008, and Jack gave me a toolbox and the keys and said, here, all right. Yeah. And doing it ever since. Yes, uh, Brazen is my ninth book, and my 10th and 11th will be out next year. So so what led you to those workshops with Jack Grapes? Of course, I um, I took Jack Grapes' workshop, um, I think, a few years before you, like 2006 or so, uh, which is a way he teaches this method writing for people who don't know, which is sort of taking the principles of method acting and applying it to the creation of poetry, which I think is, is the way poetry tends to be done, even if we don't have a guideline for it. Um, you know, we still have this, you, you get into the character of the voice that you're inhabiting, even if it's a persona poem, like the first poem we saw. Um, but what was it that led you to Jack Rape's workshop in the first place? Was it um, like out of, you know, after all those years, why was it, why, why Jack Rapes and, and why then? I was seeking and I was working out with a trainer who had been a friend of mine. I was doing a lot of est training, uh, landmark, that sort of thing. And I met Matthew Hetznecker. And I said, Matthew, I'm looking for a, a writing teacher. And he said, well, why don't you come with me to Jack Grapes? And I did and studied with him for about eight years. Mm-hmm. 
And what do you think, um, you know, what was the primary lesson that you learned from Jack? Is there there's something to, to pass on? Well, there, there were two. Um, the first one, when I told him I was making noises about uh, maybe going for an MFA, he told me he'd lock me in a closet until I had learned some sense. <laughs> um, the other thing was that he he gives you permission. Um, anything goes. This is back in the days before he taught online when he was teaching in person. And I just felt that it was a safe space and I could write and read the kind of work that maybe wouldn't be as easily accepted elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, What I did find when I started submitting it, I started getting people saying, I hate pornography, but I love your work. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll publish this, we'll publish that. Um, So it's been a real journey. And and Jack pretty much gave me permission. Yeah. Well, let's hear another poem um, from Brazen. All right. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, this one's one of my favorite poems. Um, it's called Power Play. When my lover tells me I cannot say no and I protest, she parts my legs, says, yes, baby, yes. I do it, I'm told. No becomes a foreign country. I take it as permission, open season. So when the waiter asks if there'll be anything else, I peruse his menu. I'm stuck, but I say, yes, cram my mouth with macaroons and chocolate. And when the Lyft driver seduces me in the rear view, eyes me like prey, asks, may I kiss you? I say, yes. And when the long-legged woman I've long lusted after at the gym wonders aloud if I'm single, asks me to dinner and a movie, I say yes. And when she invites me into her bed, what can I say but yes, yes, yes. And when my fan in Nova Scotia begs me to be his muse, to sanction an explicit ode to my breasts, my ankles, my lower lip, a poem he'd never show his wife, I cannot say no to his lust and delusion. Now he wants to climb me, sublime me, shoot me full of stars. Is this what you want too, he writes, and I answer, yes. And when I return to my lover at last, and she sinks into the heady dampness between my thighs, looks up at me and asks, have you been faithful? I say, yes. That was mm-hmm. Power Play by Alexis Ron Fancher from Brazen. And you see some of the photography that, that Alexis includes in this book. This is um, one of her photographs. M- m- many of the photographs or the poems have photographs next to them, um, which have sort of interestingly, um, you know, slant uh, reason, you know, relations to the poems a little bit. So it's interesting to read through the book and look at the, the photo- photography, too. That's Brazen by Alexis Ron Fancher. So, so, Alexis, what is it that draws you to erotic verse? Um, I, you know, people ask, um, you know, a long time, like, why is, are so many poems about death and sex? And my answer is because those are the two things that people don't talk about honestly in this culture, you know? Um, and so we really, we talk, we talk about them all the time because we're like skirting around the subject in these weird ways, but, but we never actually address them in a deep nuanced way. And so that's that's the taboo and, and just things are unsaid are always the stuff of art and poetry to me. Is that what draws you to it or or is there something else? I grew up in a, in a very permissive time in this country. And when I was 17, I fell in love with a, 
an artist, a painter, uh, who was 42. And all he drew were nudes and, and naked women. And he drew me a lot. And he turned me on to pretty much everything uh, from Sharon Olds to Satie to, um, you know, the great poets that I'd never read before. And I found that that was where I belonged. That was my my place. Um, I had a lovely note the other day from Suzanne Lummis saying, you've definitely found your niche. <laughs> and um, that's what I started writing. And then when my son died, the the just the devastation um, took me in another direction. Um, and there are almost three books, two and a half right now, about him. Um, but I wanted to have more of a, you know, just why do I just have to be an erotic poet? Why do I have to be a person in grief? Why can't you sometimes join the two? Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the idea that people are so uncomfortable in this society about sex. I just had a book published in Italian, Stiletto Killer. The Italians think that sex stuff is great. They have no inhibitions. And you come here and people are still very uptight. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? I mean, is it the Puritan sort of roots that we have? Or or what is it that makes us so prudish about sex in this this country? I think part of it is is just being prudish on... The idea that you have an X rating for a sex film and a G rating for a murder or armies killing each other with impunity. Um, that's our society. When you go to Europe and they look look at America from where the Europeans do, we're, we're, we're a gun-toting Wild West. We're ludicrous. We're a laughing stock between our prudity and our permissiveness with the gun culture. It's kind of funny, right? Yeah. It needs to be addressed. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you think, you know, the, the whole idea of what America is about is like the land of the free, you know, and the idea that we'd be so free would make sense, but we're, we're really not. Um, and I've never, it's not something I've thought a lot about. Um, but I just wonder what the source of that is. Like, like, why wouldn't we be more open about those topics? Because we're a Christian nation, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's the real truth, you know. Um, the way the country's going right now. I don't want an abortion. Don't have one, but don't tell me what to do. Um, it's some people thinking that it's their way and their way is right. And there's no compromise. Mm-hmm. I just read an impasse. Yeah. Sad impasse. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear, hear the next poem. Let me see. Where is number three? I wrote a series of famous poet behaving badly poems for a dear friend of mine who shall remain nameless. And um, there's about eight or nine of them, I think, uh, eight of them. And this is one. Um, and actually, they're all here in Grayson, all of them. So the famous poet asked me for naked photos. One, you are a forbidden planet, he says at the bar after his reading when all the hangers on have gone. He drains his third martini. I smile. Encouraged, he puts his arm around my shoulder, confesses he can jack off only once to a photo. He needs a constant supply. Two, the famous poet smells musty, shop-worn. He pops a breath mint, runs a hand through his silver mane. You are my muse and savior, he says, 
right after he tells me his second wife no longer likes sex. He smooths an aberrant bang from my forehead. Are you clean-shaven, he asks, staring at the mystery between my thighs, or do you roll au naturel? Three, the famous poet wants me to take a selfie in the ladies' room, pull my skirt up and my panties down, and I admit it gets me wet. Like him, I'm not getting any at home. I want to wrap my legs around his head. Four, the famous poet swears his wife is cool with his serial betrayals that they inhabit different countries in the same small house. But I've seen his wife at parties, how his philandering makes her flinch, the face of desperation choked down Sylvia Plath style, the face that wants me to suffocate like Sylvia did and watch, the face that says, once I was you. And that was the famous poet asked me for naked photos. And the question I always wonder, and of course, I think everybody else does too, is, and you can feel free to give the, um, what is that called? The, the uh, I can neither confirm nor deny, the, the non-denial denial. But is that, is that a, a single person or is it an amalgam? Is it a metaphor? Because um, it works sort of as a, on a lot of levels, actually. So I, I always wonder if it's, um, you know, thought of someone specifically or not. All of them are written to a, a particular valor famous poet mm -hmm. um except for two one of them was written for a friend of mine who had a very bad time with a poet and the other one um was written about a a, a poet married to a very famous poet who just was such a slimy guy mm -hmm. and you know came on to me and god knows everybody else um but mostly they're about one man. Uh-huh. Well, very interesting to hear that. Um, let's talk about your, your writing process a little bit. Um, you know, you said that most of your poems are autobiographical. Um, is it, what triggers a poem and, and how do you get into the memory of it? Um, you know, because a lot of you all, I think, I can't remember who says that we all have um, books in us by the time we're 10 years old or something. Because we all have such, you know, we all have complicated lives uh, and that we don't tend to get out. So how do, you, how do you get back to your memories and turn them into poems? Is there a process for you that, that involves doing that? Or do you just, like, you know, something occurs to you uh, and, then, and then you write a poem about it? Well, that would be really nice, but no. Um, <laughs> I have a, a very uh, simple writing process. I write every day um, for at least an hour, no matter what, because that's what's important to me. Um, I have had this really kind of chock full life and things just come up or I'm, I'm actually, I'm writing one now. Um, I saw something in the Smithsonian about why barns are painted red uh, because they, they um, catch the starlight. Uh, when something like that comes up, I put it into a little folder on my phone. Um, I write down things constantly from, you know, when I get up in the morning, if I'm making love with my husband, he knows, wait a minute, babe, and I'll turn to the, my, my phone and I'll write that down. Um, I've done that ever since I lost a poem in a booth at Taroni Restaurant on Spring Street, and I couldn't find it. I was sitting there with friends, and I said, I got this poem, and I talked about it, and I didn't write it down, and that was it, you know, gone, memory gone. 
I went back and I asked him, I said, did you see a poem just kind of floating around here in the air? And so that was it for me. I write everything down. I write it on my phone. I have a iMac that it converts to. I have notes. I have pages. It's just like breathing for me. I can't not write. Mm-hmm. Um, and has it been, has it ever been a struggle? Or is it always just this, you know, process of, you know, the writing's always there and it's maybe a struggle to find the time? Early on in my writing career, I had the good fortune to meet Ray Bradbury. And I, you know, just in total awe. And I said, so, you don't seem to have any problem writing. No, what do they call that writer's block crap? You know, and he said, look, this is what I do. I write in every room of the house. I have something going on on my computer. I write on a yellow pad in the toilet. I have one in my yellow pad out in my shop. I have one next to my bed. He said, I always write, but stop before I write the last line. So that when I come back to this, I know where it goes. Um, and that's what I do. And Mr. Bradbury, um, no writer's block, just not enough time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great piece of advice. You know, never having to confront a blank page because I think that's the most intimidating thing is the the unlimited potential of the white space <laughs> that uh, you know. So, um, 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 Danny Mask over on YouTube, and I should say that if anybody has any questions for Alexis, as you see Danny asking here, uh, feel free to leave them on, on the chat window either on Facebook or YouTube. If you're watching on Twitter, I'm not following that, so so find one or the other. But Danny Mass asks um, if there are any topics that are off limits for you. Is there anything you won't write about? Because you, I mean, the thing that has always stood out is just how like fearless and you just don't care what people say or think. It seems. Is there anything I, that you would avoid? Um, bestiality and uh, sex and abuse of children. Mm-hmm. I won't go to there. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Um, is there anything? Is there anything that you've, um, I mean, that makes complete sense. Um, is, is there anything that you, um, like, like thought twice about publishing or is everything, has everything that you've published, you know, you've just not worried about the reactions and just ran with it and, um, yeah, ran with it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I came of age at a time when there were no limits, you know, um, and I've lived my life that way and. You know, by not having to be dependent on my writing for a livelihood, um, all my life I wanted to be a full-time writer with enough money that I could keep the wolf from the door. I didn't care about being rich, except in friendships and experience. And I've been, for the last 20 years, living that life. Mm -hmm. Um, That's all I wanted, and I owe it the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Is a dream, is that as good as that you imagined it now that it's here? I mean, 20 years of that. Better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm married to the same guy for over 20 years whom I adore and who loves my work. Um, I write every day and, I, and my friends go, oh, my God, I'm going to get a week. I'm going to go to a, a retreat in Oregon. And I'm like, I go to a retreat every single day. Mm-hmm. I got nothing but time, you know? Yeah, well, that does sound like heaven to me. As I, uh, you know, I carve out maybe ten minutes before the show to write a, a little poem. <laughs> That's about about all I have, and um, it does seem nice um, to be able to do that. And um, I don't know. Do you? So, so you have you said you write every day. Is there a routine involved in it? Is there a certain time that you do it, um, or or is it just do you know at some point today I'm going to write? 
I run every day, um, usually in the morning, although the last couple of years I've gone from getting up at dawn and going to bed at nine to staying up to midnight and getting up at eight in the morning and writing in the evening, which is very different for me. And I was really shocked that it showed up, but you got to follow the muse. And um, I also write with a partner quite often. Um, that book duets that I sent to you um, was written with a partner. We just got together every Tuesday and we had to have work to share and having that kind of deadline and emphasis um, I think it's great for anyone, you know, mm -hmm. put those things up for yourself and then fulfill them. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's hear another poem. Um, next up, I have, um, she says stalker, he says fan. Okay, that would be number four. Oh, yeah. This was in San Pedro Review uh, a while back. Um, she says stalker, he says fan. And it's got a little epigraph here from uh, Rita Dove's Canary. Uh, if you can't be free, be a mystery. She's a singed torch song, a broken cord, the slip shadow between superstar and the door. She's that long stretch of longing, riding shotgun from nowhere to L.A., a bottle of Jack Daniels snug between her thighs, always some fresh loser at the wheel she's the zippo in your darkness a glimmer of goddess in your godforsaken life her voice a rasp a whiskey tinged caress she gets you and you know the words to all her songs follow her from dive bar to third-rate club clapping too loudly making sure she makes it home She's as luckless in love as you are, star-crossed the pair of you in your dreams. If only we could choose who we love. Tonight the bartender pours your obsession, one on the house, dims the lights in the half-empty room as she walks on stage, defenseless, but for that double O eighteen Rosewood Martin she cradles in her lap like a child. If you ask nicely, she'll end with a song you requested night after night about the perils of unrequited love. You'll blurt out your worship into her deaf ear while her fingers strum your forearm and her nails break your skin. Give the lady whatever she wants, you'll tell the barkeep. Like that's even possible. Yeah, another great poem that is She Says Stalker, He Says Fan by Alexis Roach-Pancher from her book Brazen. Um, Alexis, there's a question here from uh, Sharon Front. I think I might know the answer. Um, but she says, I love erotic. How do you get past the fear of writing it? Um, and so my, my follow-up would be, did you ever have a fear of writing it? No, I guess I was born without that. <laughs> no, I, 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 I grew up in a very liberal household. Um, books everywhere. The only... Um, admonition is I would have to be able to reach it, to read it. And, uh, you know, the James Baldwin and the Michener and all the erotica was on the top shelf, so I got a ladder. And I've just been reading like that ever since, and I don't, I don't know. Why would you be afraid to write your truth? You know, I, I, don't, I don't depend on this for my livelihood. I depend on this for my sanity. And if I couldn't write the truth, 
when would when, when if not this is what I, I teach and this is what I say to my students when they're fear, fearful I said if not now when when are you going to be bold enough fearless and write your truth mm-hmm. yeah yeah more great advice um, Jimmy Papa says I have trouble writing about moments in Vietnam where I heard racial comments made are there limits on using the n-word or do I just tell the truth have you ever faced a similar situation I'm not sure about what the question is. Um, you know, using using um, you know like racial words like the the N word, um, things like that. Do you ever have do you have any restrictions like that? That besides for the two things you mentioned, um, are there any? Uh, you know, is there any advice on on that kind of delicate situation? Wow, um, one of my favorite poets and best friends is Tony Glugler, and he wrote that poem famous with the N word in it, and it mattered because it was in context. Um, I do not use racial slurs in, in my, in my work. Um, that's pretty much the only, only thing I, I would never do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was married to a black man for many years. My child was interracial. Oh, the idea of no, that I would never do. Yeah. Um, so another thing that you do is uh, photography and I've always wondered, did the photography precede the poetry or did they start at the same time? How long have you been doing that? And, and, um, how did you get into photography? I was 10 and my dad and mom took my sister and I to San Francisco. My dad, uh, bought me like a little instamatic camera and about 10 rolls of film. And I shot everything I saw. And when I got home, he had the film developed and then he bought me an icon. He just said, you've got something here. And he recognized it and he nurtured it. I've been shooting since 10. I've been writing crappy poetry as a child. Um, I've always been a poet and always been a photographer. And I, I just think I grew into it and had the opportunity. So they're, they're equal for me. I'm, I'm writing a poem with my, with my eyes. I'm painting a picture with my words. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so so what is it? I've never had a photographer on, I don't think, on the Rattlecast in 189 episodes that I can remember. So so what is it about, one of the things I love about your work, I love your street work. Like there's so much street photography that you do about LA, just documenting LA and, and walking around. How do you approach, how do you approach that? Do you, do you have an eye for a photograph all the time while you're walking around, you're always ready for it? Or do you like certain times you go out and look? And if so, what are you looking for? Like, how does the I, I don't how does the photography process compare to the writing process? Well, I think the photo, photograph finds me. Um, I lived downtown in L.A. for about seven, seven, eight years, um, way in the middle of downtown, six and spring. And I would just take my camera, i.e. my trusty cell phone um, with me. And because it's a phone, people would not know that I was photographing them. And I could just, I, it's almost like you frame something in your eye and then you sort of catch it. Um, my husband will drive and I shoot out the window. Um, when I moved to San Pedro, I'm living up on the bluffs of San Pedro, everything shifted. It was much more nature. Uh, the people were at the beach. Um, I just shoot what's there. I go looking um, and the poems just sort of show up. Mm-hmm. Really go, oh God, what am I going to write about today? Um, I'll just look at my notes and go, oh, write about that barn, the red barn, you know. Yeah. 
do you think about like the framing and the lighting and the composition of the shot as you're taking you know pictures like or is it just all organic and natural it's the difference between street where everything is random and um it just sort of occurs and i document when i shoot poets uh when i shoot uh people i work in a studio i control the light i control the room i control the back part you know everything is under control um i like the lack of control when i get out of there and and just shoot what's on the street um one time i was uh in the metro downtown and i was just sitting with my phone and shooting all the people as we were you know traveling down and this woman looked and she goes she's photographing us and the and 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 the, the metro stopped the doors open i grabbed my husband and we ran it was it was sort of i don't know if you've seen day of the locust no, but you know there's a scene where everybody sort of turns and the crowd gets angry and i have that dream sometimes at night that that lady found me and was not happy so oh, wow so do you how often do you talk to the people that you're doing that photography with? Is it is it always sort of a clandestine effort or do you I think I remember when you were shooting uh for me, we were walking around LA a little bit and we talked to somebody and there was sort of a guy there's some photos with. Um I remember that. So so how much do you do that? How much do you interact with the people that you shoot? If it's street, I don't re- interact at all. Hmm. It's just a crap shot, you know. Um but in in the studio I want to coax that side of you that no one's seen before. I want you to show me who you are. And that's the person I want to shoot. I think the best compliment I ever got was from a woman. I did her photos and she said, oh, my God, that's what I think I look like on a very good day. Mm. And that's what, I'm, that's what I want. I want you to just, um, and I should say that I'm, in the process of working with Eric Morago at Moontide, and we're going to put out a coffee table photo book of all the L.A. poets I've shot over the last 12, 15 years. Oh, that's great. Next year. So, send you. Yeah, please do. For the street photography, do you, do you worry about, like, the rights and permission to use the photographs? That's one of the things I always wonder about, too. Because if I know if you're, like, seen from the street, it's public. But then if you're using it for certain commercial uses, there's like might be issues. I don't, I don't know. So do you, is that something that you worry about or do you just, um, you know, how does that work? I don't worry about it. Um, if you're on the street, you're fair game. It's kind of how, you know, that, that's sort of the sensibility. I know there are places, though, and that, that you have to have permission if you have a person in it. And, of course, if I do, I will. But nobody's going to come after me. I mean, what are they going to do? Those people in the Metro maybe would have you know, devoured me, but I think not. Yeah. I don't worry. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear another poem. Uh, what's next? Uh, let's see. This one is, is a little more serious um, and very autobiographical. I uh, was in a really bad accident when I was... 20 and everyone died but me and um i spent almost a year in the hospital and never been quite the same but yeah it's called my body is a map of scars a girl with good legs wears dresses 
my blind date sighed over dinner. My body is a minefield. My body is liability, is albatross. The gash across my eyebrow where nothing grows. The crisscross that mars my rebuilt leg. How full-length mirrors avoid me. I chew prime rib thoughtfully, make two trips to the salad bar on my ugly legs. My body is betrayal. My body is stain, is renegade. The sad limp, the gouge at the base of my throat. I order an after-dinner cognac, then another. My body is car crash. My body is plunder. My body not my body. I watch his eyes disappear into the long-legged perfection of a girl in a tiny skirt, the green of a ripe avocado. No lattice lace scars furrow her past and future. I dream a lover blind to trauma. Look at my palm. See how the lifeline ends and then restarts. And that was my map is a body of, or my body is a map of scars, I should say, from Brazen. Um, a few people on, on Facebook have mentioned that uh, the stream is choppy over there. If it is, I think it's a Facebook issue. Go over to YouTube. That's what I would just suggest. But anyway, um, and they're, you know, join the, I think there's 55 people watching on YouTube right now. So join them and, and just leave Facebook. I think they have, I think for some server, it's, it's an issue. But um, so Alexis, with this poem is a good one to ask you about, because I want to ask about your line breaks and the way you format a poem, um, because there's sort of a, a freedom and sort of a haphazardness to it. But then with, with a, without losing a feeling of intentionality and that there's a reason for the shape a poem takes so, so what do you think about the structure of a poem? How, why do the poems of yours look the way they do on the page? I think I like a poem to be one page. I like it to be all right there in front of you. And, you know, occasionally you can't do that. But I like when I'm writing, I, I, I'm seeing it on a page. Hmm. I have uh, more and more written, be, uh, sorry, I've more and more wanted to write prose poems. Uh, and I've done a lot of that because there are no line breaks. So I'm just going to lay it out there the way it is. But with something like My Body is a Map of Scars, it was almost like tumbling through the poem and this, this sort of energy that blah, blah, and, and feel, mm -hmm. you know, and then look at my hand, you know, there's that lifeline. And it really is. It starts and then stops and starts again. Yeah. Huh. Um, I I have learned a lot about line breaks from my early work. Um, one of my dear friends and someone I write with uh, and edit with is the poet Elaine Lockie up in Northern California, and she is really strict about line breaks, and she has changed how I look at them. Hmm. So you'll see in this book, for example, is very different than how I lost my virginity which was very early on. Um, I just wanted to feel right on the page. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, you wanted to look on one page and sort of have a shape. Does that have anything to do with the photography? Does that, is there sort of a, a composition that you're seeing in the poem too, in the way you would a photo? Is that part of it? Wow, I never thought of that before, but I think so. I think so. That's very good. 
him. It's, um, well, thanks. <laughs> the other thing that I want to talk about. I think it, it's a compos composition thing. Mm -hmm. um, just the way they come out. Yeah. I mean, occasionally long, but and also I think of when I look on a page and somebody sent me a poem. I don't want it to go on and on. Or if I'm in a hurry and I'm I'm reading, you know, rattled and and, and I'll look at the, and I'll pick the one that fits into the time space I have. Um, so I think all of that comes into play. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I want to ask about, um, I didn't know that story about you, the accident you were in when you were 20. Do you think that has something to do with being fearless of having, you know, I mean, laying in, you know, being in a hospital for that long, um, your lifeline stopping and, you know, thinking you might not live. Does that make you, you know, appreciate your life for the moments in a way that you hadn't before that? Was there like a, a philosophical inf in impact that that had on you that's made you so fearless? Is that part of it, you think? I think the fact that I was the only one to survive um, and that I not only survived, but came back and thrived and three years later I traveled all over Europe for a year you know I was young I was fearless before but not focused and now looking back on it I think I think that really did play a part you know I, I cheated death I should not have the only reason I survived was my fiance was driving I had been very tired and I laid my head down kind of on his lap and curled up. And the doctor said that the only thing that saved me is I was relaxed. Oh, wow. Um, but I remember looking up and seeing people all around, and then they used the jaws of life. Um, if you've lived through that, what are you going to be afraid of? Hmm. Um, as far as fearless, why not? Why not? Yeah. It just never occurred to me to write anything other, and I've never been afraid. Maybe I should have been, you know. Well, that's fascinating, too, just as a metaphor. And I've heard that about, you know, drunk drivers, too, that a lot of times when people are drunk driving, they're the one who survives because their body is, is limp and loose and not, you know, rigid. And so when they hit the, the wall of the dashboard and then through the window, it's like, you know, bouncy and mobile and breaking their own fall instead of stiff and, you know, and... And, and that's a way that you, if you go through life fearless, you know, you go through things that you might not otherwise. Uh, so I think that's a really cool metaphor, too, for, for how, how life is psychologically, uh, right? Well, you cheat death. I cheated death. I should have died. Everybody died. The people who hit us, the people. Who... I think it does. I, I never really thought of it before, Tim, but I think you're absolutely right. I think I, I thought, what have I got to lose? And, and then there's the part about being true to who you are. And I, I tell this to young poets. I tell this to my students. Why wouldn't you write your truth? What's going to happen to you? Nothing. There's, you know, the truth police is not yet out there. I mean, they're coming. But not yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, excellent point. Um, let's keep on. We have a few more poems I want to get to. Let's do another poem. Okay. That what? Um, I had next is uh, at the bar after his reading, another famous poet poem. I thought I'd, I'd do a few of those today. At the bar after his reading, the famous poet still can't recall my name. But I think you're exceptionally fuckable, he grins. He doesn't remember how the booze flowed, how the room spun, how I fell into his bed. 
four martinis down, he nibbles a toothpick-speared olive, gazes soulfully at my tits as if they offer a clue. I sidle up to his ear. Here's a tip. It smelled like a holiday inn. The famous poet adjusts his paunch, eases another notch on his belt, diddles with the bar food, orders another round. I slosh in the sea of his forgetfulness. I want to tell him how it felt to be touched by fame, how he never returned my calls, how some nights the only way I get off is to imagine his words, how even tonight I can't keep my hands off him. Yeah, it's not a great uh, famous poet poem. After At the bar, after his reading, the famous poet still can't recall my name uh, from Brazen. Um <clears throat> So, so what is the the reception of your books like in the in the sort of regular poetry circle? Like you remember, you, you mentioned that Jack Rabe said like run from MFA programs. Do you participate in things like the AWP conference and 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 how you know how is the reception to more erotic poems? Um, how, how does how what's the reaction to that and to poems like this, which um, you know everybody at AWP would be trying to guess who that poet is and, and probably you know have, have many options for who it might be. Um, so, so what is the, what is the reaction to your work in that kind of, in that crowd of regular poets? Um, I have a, I have a degree in theater, a BA in theater, um, no, um, poetry training except with studying with Jack, but I call myself a feral poet and I'm not trying to be flip. I really mean it. I, I don't have any academic fruit salad on my name. I don't, um, AWP, when it was here in L.A., was really nice. I went. I have to confess I would not go out of my way. Um, it was wonderful, though. I, I hosted Dorian Locks and Joe Millar for AWP because it was five blocks away from my apartment downtown. Um, I'm sort of by proxy. You know, I have a lot of friends with a lot of uh, fancy degrees. Um, I think not having all that has been a blessing. Mm-hmm. because I don't have any restraints. I don't care. I'm not going to get tenure. Um, if I teach, it's my invitation. I um, It freed me because, you know, I didn't have any of that. And I find a lot of people in academia are afraid, you know, and I don't know that I wouldn't be, but not a problem. Well, it is a problem for uh, for our culture, I think, that, you know, that's the place that we should have the least fear and, and most willingness to explore. And I, I agree that there is a fear behind that. And everybody I've talked to who's been there and left has talked about the, the freeing feeling of, of not being afraid anymore, which is just, uh, I mean, that in itself is frightening, I would say. Um, what about the uh, marketing angle for your books? Do you do you are you able to tap into that? Because erotic literature is, is great selling. You know, we had the Oh, what was that? The, you know the that movie Fifty that became yeah. There yes. you go. That yes. and the, and I know somebody else who um, you know writes under a pen name, erotica novels, and they sell so much better than his you know stuff that he considers serious um, because there's just such a market for that relative to poetry, especially, but um, to to literary fiction too. Are you able to get in front of that audience for poetry? And and do people that like erotica are are they turned on by by uh, erotic poetry? Let's say. I don't think of myself as someone who has competition from, what is it, E.L. James. Uh-huh. I find most of that bodice-ripping romance, uh, 
quote unquote uh, erotica boring. Yeah. Uh, I I don't read a lot of sex poems or sex work. I really want to keep my vision pure. I know it's an odd odd word, but um, I market my books myself. Before I was a poet, I was a um, marketing and advertising executive for about 20 years. And I learned a lot about getting yourself in front of a, an audience, selling your books. Um, I, I do a lot of marketing, but more on my own. And, and I'm pleased to say after nine books, I have an audience and people ask me when the book will be out. And um, I, have, I have a friend in, in Canada who uh, buys 10 copies of every book and brings them to the bartenders at the bars he helps to. Um, I have another friend, you know, that, this, these are people who will sell it for me. Mm -hmm. Am I a best-selling author? No. But does that matter? Uh, not so much. Yeah. Well, uh, Deb, Deb T. puts it nice over here. I think it's Deb Tannenbaum. She says, um, it seems to me that Lexus poems aren't erotica, but that they include erotic elements. And I think that's the completely true. And so I was wondering if it could be like a gateway, you know, like we always want to get more people. The hardest part of my job is to, for 20 years, has been to try to get people to read poems who don't usually read poems. And so I'm kind of hoping, you know, any avenue we can find, whether it's Instagram um, or, you know, erotica, whatever we can do to get more people reading poetry is a good thing. Do you, have you found that at all, that, that you've been sort of a gateway into different poetry from people who are looking for, you know, stuff with that title? I would hope so, but I, I'm not aware of that. Um, it's it never occurred to me, you know, but um, a, lot of my, a lot of my press is word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, this new book, uh, a friend of mine just bought 20 copies. She's giving them to all her friends. Um, it's good enough for me right now. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear another poem. We have two left. So uh, we'll do a poem and then a couple more questions and then uh, the last poem. So. No, I did want to say one more thing. Yeah. Um, when I was studying with Jack Grapes, every the end of every 10, 12-week class, there would be a reading at Beyond Baroque. And for maybe the three or four first times I was there, I read erotica. And the fifth time I read from the Dead Kid poems. And um, people came up to me, I mean, a lot of people, and said the same thing. You know, that poem was interesting, but it's not what we were here for. Mm. We were here for the erotica. And I learned, you know, that there was that audience. Um, and I pandered to it, what can I say? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, all right. You want another poem? Yeah, yeah, another poem. But I just say, I mean, I think there's a, no problem with that when you're still writing from your authentic self, right? Um, you know, yeah. having your audience in mind is something that's worth doing because if you're writing, you want to be sharing things with the world and you want people to appreciate them, right? It's true. I mean, there's a big part of me that that loves that people read my work and I'm excited and great grateful. Uh, and there's another part of me that just writes. And and as long as the work is good, that's enough for me right now. Mm -hmm. You know, someday in the future, somebody will find this book. Look at what this woman is writing in twenty twenty three. Oh my lord! But that's in the future. Uh -huh. um, this was written for a very good friend of mine, who again will remain nameless. But this guy is really hot, and it's called Grab Shot. You Ferrari baby. You lotus elan, you dream man, smooth moves, always some sleek bitch on your arm, and me, side kicking just after that. 
so I shoot you, replicate you in oversized prints spread out on my bed like facsimile. Those blown up biceps, fine-tuned torso, face up on my pillow, your perfect pores. How the camera loves you, baby, those smoldering Billy D shots aimed straight at a woman's vulnerability. How you juice them, seduce them, your voice dropping an octave when a woman calls and you get all very white. You've kept up the upkeep, changed the oil, sleek, toned, you alpha baby, and Romeo, you candy apple, you metal fleck, the wind buffs glitter all around you. That night at my studio, after one too many Hennessy's, we stand toe to toe, and I turn my lips to yours, ask, why not me? You grab my ass with two hands, squeeze and shrug. The baby got no back. And I flash to that chorus line of slow-eyed beauties. You bedded, each one bottom-heavy, riper than I could ever be, as if derriere were the measure of a woman. Let's get back to work, you say. You rev up your engine. I flick on the lights. Oh, baby, you shimmer, you gleam. Stand up, I tell you. Pull the shirt over your head. Now you can't see me for real. You who can't see the beamers for the beaters. You who wouldn't know love if it bit you on the ass. <laughs> that is grab shot. Uh, another poem <laughs> from uh, from Brazen, a Brazen poem. Um, so nobody's mentioned it yet, I don't think, but in talking about the fear of writing um, erotica, um, to me it seems like the real difficulty is that there's so many cliches involved and there's so much like, there's that feeling of, um, you know, how bad the typical shades of gray erotic fiction is, is writing that sort of clouds everything. And, and it makes it difficult, I think, to write to write anything like that. Is there any advice you would have in, or, in order to write erotically that doesn't fall into those tropes and, and doesn't use that tired language and um, it comes at it in a fresh way? I think the, the best advice I could give to a person that wants to write erotica or sex is to write the space around it. If you look at my work, it, there's almost never a, a dirty word or nobody's ever, you know, fucking or it's it's not about the act. It's about the space around the act that take, I, for me, it changes it from porn to poetry or, or good writing. Um, I don't like writing for... Uh, effect, and I don't like to shock people. Um, I think you have to be aware of cliche. If you've said it that way, I mean, it's like, oh, she was so wonderful. She lit up a room. I mean, really? So think of new ways. How could you talk about, I mean, with Grabshot, I just wrote the space around it. You never see anything and never touches her until he grabs her ass and said, that's not good. You know, um, that would be that would be my advice right around it. And be honest. What's the worst that can happen? You know, I, I had one guy early on. I sent my work to this literary magazine and I got back this really terse like I will not be publishing 
these poems in my magazine. <laughs> um, okay, that's fine. You know. Uh, well, it's interesting because it goes back to the photography maybe too. I've heard, you know, photographers say that, uh, you know, you're not phot photographing objects or people, you're photographing the light. And it's a similar kind of thing. It's the, you know, what's around the, the objects you're actually focusing on is what actually matters for the shot, you know? And so it's similar with a poem, I'd say. Well, it's all about the light. Yeah. Whether you're inside and you're setting up the lights or if you're looking at it, um, yeah. It's about the light and it's about the space around it. Mm -hmm. um, another question um, from Monica Dobos. She says, you confessed your love for your husband and your strong relationship. Um, has he ever objected to any of your poems? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, I think if he did, he wouldn't last very long. I think it's the issue. He would not have married me. Um, <laughs> when I was looking to find true love um a good friend of mine took me this was in 2000 so 23 years ago he good friend of me took me out to lunch and she said there's this new thing called match.com and you should go on it you know and have somebody take a picture that looks like you and and write you know you're a writer so do it and um i did and i met my husband uh within a few weeks and I lived in Culver City. He lived, you know, five miles away in Mar Vista. We never would have met. Um, and he, I had all these naked, not me, photographs I'd shot all over my house. And my best friend said, well, you know, if you really want to meet a good man, you're going to have to take those down. And I said, if I meet a man and he doesn't like those, he's not good for me. <laughs> yeah, that's and, um Yeah, no, he's, he's. It's kind of funny because sometimes when I introduce him to people, they, they look directly at his crotch. But aside <laughs> from that, nah, he's he's just yeah, he's 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 not only okay with it, he's happy. <laughs> well, uh, before we finish up with the last poem, uh, what do you got? You said you have two books coming up. Um, are, are there are they different? Um, you know, what are the topics or what are those books like that are coming out soon? Well, uh, the the one that I'm I'm very excited about that I'm working on now is um, called Triggered or Trigger Warning, we're not sure. And it's a bunch of in-your-face, uh, very erotic poetry that I am working on with a Canadian painter. Her name is Kenna Baradell. She is brilliant. Talk about fearless. She sent me a copy of a painting, huge painting, that has me in the center naked except for wearing red boots a funny hat and i'm holding a book and all the people on either side are naked and i said can i want to use this as my cover of my next book and she said well let's write a book oh, wow. um so I got that coming out probably before the end of the year and i believe kenna's listening so hey kenna um <laughs> and the other one is called my criminal boyfriend and it's the saga i, I guess the log line would be uh bonnie and clyde take a road trip in the 70s um, and that I've been, I've been writing uh, flash fiction for that. And I studied with uh, John Bradingham. He teaches a flash class. And I just started really working on it. Um, I think by the end of the year, that'll be ready to send out into the world. That's interesting. You mentioned, I mean, you call it fiction. Is that autobiographical or is that, um, is, it, is it fiction or is it, you know, based on a true story? Um, the woman who, uh, my, my best friend, Kate O'Donnell, who was the poem I read first, who died of breast cancer, uh, this is her story. 
She met a, she lived in Chicago. She met a, a B and E man breaking and entering guy named Laddie, an Irishman. And, you know, she was going to college and he pulled up one day and he says, I'm going to California. She says, excuse me while I drop out of college. And they went and it's, it's a a bloody saga of murder and mystery. um, And true, mostly true. I think I've, I've kind of made a couple parts a little more dramatic, but pretty much true. Yeah, you've mentioned a few times the, the the sort of change in the times. Do you think it's possible for anybody you know young today to live the kind of adventurous life that you did? Um, you know, yeah. yeah. Of course. I mean, you gotta want it, and you gotta be fearless. I was fearless before I knew what it meant. It just came out that way. Um, I think it's possible, you know, to just, I'm working with several people who are writing brazenly, you know, and, and, and I think once they see where that goes, you can never go back. You can never just write plain vanilla crap, could you? Everybody does that. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, let's hear one last poem before we, uh, to wrap it up. Uh, This is the last poem in the book. Um, It pretty much says everything I want to say about my life and myself and my beliefs. Um, It uh, begins with an epigraph. There's a God for broken people, Roxane Gay. It's called the God for broken people. This is the God for the second rate, the one who waylays you at a party, plies you with bourbon, fucks you in the kitchen, makes you walk home in the rain. This God shines in the runoff. This God hustles the night. This God minds the maimed, culls emotional cripples off the top like cream. This God is a shape shifter, a dumper, a dumpster diver, the God who loiters at the corner of Dolorosa and despair. This God drinks alone. The God for broken people, trolls the city for discards, marries the exploited with the lost. This God sweeps up the miscreants, gusts their darkness into night. This is the God of no hope, no money. This God has your back when you backslide. This God bets on you to fail, hides in your broken places. This God is willing to wait. When you're ready to surrender, remember this is your last best chance. This God will not stick by you, won't give you false hope. This God will kill you or save you. Choose. Yeah, and that was God, the God for Broken People. Again, more poems from Brazen, Alexis Frone Fancher's newest book from New York Quarterly Books. Um, Alexis, thanks so much for being a guest tonight. It's just always fun talking to you and, and great seeing a new book. Um, always love your work and I appreciate it. So thanks for being here. I love your work too. American Fractal is one of my favorite books. Oh, thank I, you. I keep it on my nightstand to this day. Um, people need to know that you are a kick-ass, kick-ass poet. Um, <laughs> you for having me i've looked forward to this oh thanks so much well i have to um uh, i just love your work and your photography too which i should have like flipped to uh some photos just so um people can see get a sense of this in the book too there's these beautiful photos um and I'll, I'll show a few really quickly before you go 
But uh, here's some street photography. This is uh, the one on page 19, by the way, we're looking at. Um, and so there's just great photos throughout this book, too, Brazen by Alexis Rohn Thancher. Uh, thanks again, Alexis. It's, it's great to have you. Thank you. I really had a great time. Yep. Good night. Good night. Yeah, with Alexis Rohn Fancher. Um, stick around for open lines. We're not done yet if you're new to watching, but that was Alexis Rohn Fancher. Uh, her newest book, Brazen, is the one we were focusing on, but she has a whole bunch of books. There's um, Erotic, New and Selected right here. She mentioned Duets, which I also have, uh, where she wrote with Cynthia Atkins, who we've also published in Rattle. Um, and she's the author of nine books, so check some of them out. You can find it all at alexisrohnfancher.com. Uh, pull it up on the screen really quickly. Here's uh, alexisrohnfancher.com, uh, the website. Spelled like it is right there, Alexis, L-A-L-E-X-I-S. Roan is R-H-O-N-E, and then Fancher is F-A-N-C-H-E-R. That's AlexisRoanFancher.com to find all of her books and all of her, her photography, and there's so much there. So do check that out. Now, we're going to have the open lines, as always, and if you'd like to participate, you can share whatever you'd like. Uh, you can share poems for the prompt this week. You can share poems about current events. You can share poems you published recently, something you wrote just now, something you wrote a long time ago. One poem, probably, but anything you'd like to share, and here's how you do it. Um, go to uh, email first and email your poem to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. Uh, openmic at rattle.com. Find that, email it, email your poem, and then I can show it on screen like I was for everybody else. And then find the Zoom link to join the Zoom that Alexis was just on. I'll paste it into Facebook and YouTube right now. Only if you'd like to share a poem, though, because we'll be sitting right here and not going anywhere if you'd just like to listen and watch and enjoy. But if you want to share a poem, find that Zoom link and pop on and join me. We have about an hour to do that. Uh, we'll get to as many poems as we can, which is always fun. So uh, sit tight, and I'll be right back with the open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, now, the prompt for this week, if anybody had a prompt poem, was based on uh, last week's guest. Um, um, had a, a poem. It was <laughs> Dick Westheimer, of course. And his title poem repeats the word um, America, I believe, right? Um, yeah. Um, very often. So we decided to do a poem with has a, a noun in every line. So this was the prompt. This was uh, pick a noun, either randomly or with intention, Write a poem that includes that noun in every line. And so I had a very busy week. I mean, I'm flying to um, the, the NFT NYC conference, which is kind of like the AWP for like digital art. And we're trying to introduce poetry, more poetry there, and get poetry treated like digital art. I have a panel with Katie Dozier. Uh, we have some, some poetry gallery readings and stuff. And so I've got to like get all my work for the week done and like the weekend. Very little time. All I had time was the time that I was walking the dog. And so I thought, how can I do this while walking the dog? It has to be a short enough poem that uh, I can keep it all in my head. So that's what I did. And here is my tiny little poem, um, Impatience. Impatience. But now it's spring, she says. And with, that, and with that springs to the window as if the springs on her feet were real. Outside the violets spring from soil, the cherry blossoms spring from branches, slowly springing an answer, spring. So that is uh, Impatience, my tiny little poem written with, um, you know, the, the number of feet grow and then shrink for some reason, like flowers growing maybe? I don't know what I was even thinking. But that was my, uh, my attempt for this week. Let's see what you have. And let's go first to, uh, let's go to Dick Westheimer, who was first and last next week. He's first in line right now. Hey, Dick, how you doing? 
Um, excuse me. I'm doing great. It's Monday night. It's a rattle night. That's, <laughs> and we've had three dry days here in Southwest Ohio. So there's my fingernails are dirty. I have no beach tar on my feet. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I mean, it's beautiful here for the first time. It was like 25 degrees like three days ago. And today walking the dog, I was like sweating. And so that's why I was thinking I got to write a spring poem. Um, it, it really feels nice. The sun is out. The birds are singing. The, the snow banks have all melted away. And it's definitely here finally, April 10th. Um, anyway, what do you have to share with us? Uh, well, I did a prompt poem, believe it or not. Uh -huh. uh, I sent in. Um, and it, it just happened coincidentally. I'd read, um, a supermarket in California by Allen Ginsberg, uh, about Walt Whitman, which has this sort of repeating frame of calling out Walt Whitman's name. And I thought, huh, there's some poets I could do that for. Interesting. So, um, so this one became a, um, uh, a sort of, um, honorific to um maxine kuman oh yeah great poet i know you're a big fan of hers and uh i am too she's great we've published her there's an interview with her in rattle 20 did you know that no i didn't oh. know that. well that you would... should check out rattle 20 because that's uh it's got maxine kuman in there um you have them in stock i'll check <laughs> i think so well I'll, 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 yeah okay <laughs> I think that'd so. be great that'd be the only way i could get a hold of it i like love that um so yeah so anyway this is my um my ode to Maxine Kuhlman, um, uh, titled When I Am Eaten, Who Will Mark the Eating? And it does have some lines drawn from Maxine Kuhlman poems. Um, and the epigraph is, not where he eats, but where he is eaten. A certain convocation of politic worms are even Adam. Oh, that's, so. that, that sounds very modern <laughs> for a Shakespeare quote. Yes. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, he did a few things pretty pretty remarkable. Uh, when I am eaten, who will mark the eating? Geez, Maxine, you had me at excrement. Who knew until you that we are gods whose creation is what we shit, that these fragrant piles are work worth honoring? And oh, Maxine, it's not that I am aroused by fornicating Japanese beetles, but like you... I am a bad Buddhist when it comes to the gruesome part in their coitus interruptus. And who else, Maxine, but you would amuse lapsed pacifist me in the sharing of the thrill of putting a twenty-two to the nose of a woodchuck? Yes, I have done it too. But Maxine, my muse, I am not as brave as you, would never work words into verse to share with my squeamish friends how success is measured in the fewest twitches. And that the ditch, Maxine, where I dump the carcasses, seems to be cleansed of the flesh next time I come. How I found a strange skeleton on a path deep in the woods. And yes, Maxine, it was not strange at all, but a woodchuck stripped to the bone. And it seemed like an omen or just a reminder that where I eat, I will be eaten, Maxine. But you knew that and more, that we render our fellow, creature, our fellow creatures in such stress positions, in extraordinary renditions of our indifference, or that we must 
please, Maxine, pay attention when someone we know says, fuck the Geneva Convention. Holy cow, Maxine, when that 22 is pointed at my nose, when my flesh is flung by the side of the road, when what's left of me reeks and defiles, spatters and leaks down, and my bones are trundled off in today's last load. Now that you are gone, Maxine, who will honor the shit that I have become? That was a great poem, Dick. Thanks so much for sharing that. The repetition of Maxine worked really well. Um, I love that. Yeah. Great poem. Um, I love, I love her work. The problem with a poem like that is figuring out how to, like, do you have to note every line, every word? Do you note two words that come from a poem of somebody? How how do you, how do you annotate that? I, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know either. I've seen like in the back of books, um, you know, listing, listing them out, you know, as notes to the book, but I'm not really sure. Um, let me ask you before, what is your favorite book from, by Maxine Cuban? Is there something you'd recommend people get if they want to be introduced to her work? Because she's not a poet people talk about much these days. Um, well, I think I think her um, her book, Still to Mo, which I think is one of her latest, it, it's sort of a new... It, it, she um, made a decision to become, to not avoid being political in poems. I think she had for years, like not being overtly political. And then she really came out strong and still to Mo, which is a terrific book. Okay, great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great um, advice. Yeah. Well, we'll check that out. Anybody who wants to know more about Max and Cuman. Uh, thanks, Dick. Always a pleasure. Uh, we'll see you again next week. I hope. Thank you. Yep. So Dick Westheimer with when I am eaten, who will mark the eating? Um, let's go next to, uh, let's go over, uh, to Indian do, uh, Nivedi to Karthik next because she, uh, you know, you has to go to work, I think soon. So let's try and see if we get Nivy. Are you there, Nivy? Uh, hello. Hey, Nivy, how you doing? It's great to see you again. Sorry that we haven't gotten to your, you know, cause we only get to the people on zoom lately. Um, uh, it's so uh, early there, but it's great to see you. Um, how you doing? Fine. <laughs> Um, um, it's great to be back here, I think, after a long time for me. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's always fun to see you. Uh, so what do you have to share? Um, so I have a prompt poem. Uh, so what I did for that was I actually Googled the top 25 most commonly used nouns. And the first, third, and fifth ones were units of time. Interesting. The first one was time. The third one was years. And the fifth one was days. Uh, so I wrote three quatrains, one with time, one with years, one with days, uh-huh. and ended it with a dosset in which each line had the word time, years, and days. So that is basically my prompt poem. Very interesting. Well, let's hear it. Time is measured in years and days. Walking through endless time, I search. Time is a healer of all wounds, you said, and so I wait for the time when I can live a life worthy of my time. A new year has come yet again, giving me the chance to right the wrongs of my previous year. But all it does is reinforce that my years of this world are increasing, while the number of years I have left to right my wrongs is decreasing. Each day passes by way too fast, a repeat of the day before and the day before that. I'm slowly losing hope that the next day that dawns will be the day that I will truly live. 
Yet, I hope and pray that a time will come in the near future, hopefully this year, when I feel happy and ready to face each new day. Oh, that's a great poem as always, Nivi. I can really relate to uh, running out of time like that. There's just not enough time um, for all the, the good things we want to do in the world. Um, so thanks for sharing that. That was excellent. And great to see you again. It's been, I don't know, a month or two. So it's great to see you. Uh, I think from this time I should be able to because I think your daylight savings is gone. So for me, it's just that one hour difference makes a lot of time. I get this five minutes in the rain getting ready for work to, you know, sort of be like, okay, I can make five minutes work. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Well, that's another argument for making daylight savings time permanent, which is a <laughs> discussion we have over here in the States. Thanks so much, Nivi. It's always great to see you. Thank you, Tim. Lovely talking yeah, to you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. You too. Bye. Yeah, that was Nivia DeCarthic with Time is Measured in Years and Days. Uh, let's go to a uh, first-time caller now, and um, Joan Menapiece is here. Hey. Hi, Joan. How you doing? Hello. Thank you. I'm fine. How is everybody? We're great. Um, so where are you calling from, first of all? Um, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. Ah, very good. And then, um, let's see, did you email your poem in? I'm trying to find it. I did email it. Hmm. Did you not find it? Uh, um, let me look. I mean, there's a big list. I'm, I'm not seeing it yet. Let's see. Let me check my spam really quickly. Um, if not, we can just hear you read it. But it is nice to see. I don't. I don't have it. Yeah. It's a. It's a double. A B C Darian. Hmm. I don't have it. Do you want to try to email me again, and we'll swing back to you because it's nice to be able to see him. Okay, yeah, I think it would be important for this okay. one. Yeah, so just call uh, or just email it to openmic at rattle.com, and I'll, I'll come back when I get it. Okay. Okay, great. Okay, well, let's go next to uh, another overseas uh, open micer, and Spartacus is here. Uh, hey, Spartacus, how you doing? Hi. Hey, yeah, great to see you. Uh, and you are great in, uh, are you in Greece right now, or are you back somewhere else? Um, yes, I'm in Greece in Athens. Uh, uh, glad to be here. Just came today from Cyprus. Ah, excellent. What are you doing in Athens? Holidays. Ah, excellent. Time for, time for myself, finally. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, what, what do you do for a living, by the way, Spartacus? That you're traveling all over. Um, no, no, I'm not traveling. I'm a school teacher. Ah, mm-hmm. um, so I'm working in schools, and I'm working in a school in Cyprus. And I, um, my first subject was uh, teaching Latin in UK. And uh, and Greek, and now I'm teaching philosophy and Greek to uh, a school in Cyprus. Oh, excellent! Yeah, very interesting. Well, thanks for for sharing that. And and what poem do you have to share? I have it right here. Um, I've got a poem inspired by the song of a frog in the swamp. Interesting poem inspired um, by the song of a frog. I love that title. Yeah. Just before I start, I want to say, you know, I just love love the grape, um, the grapes. Um, I used to do some lessons with him when was the pandemic and he was so supportive and the whole group oh. of writers there was so separate, uh, supportive so cool so cool people and for the people that they have done this class I remember because I was always anxious to write something and present something because the other writers were super cool and uh, really really experienced writers um, he told us the first time you know you need to write something like I went to Ralph's to get a chicken and we had, all of us had to do this exercise. Uh-huh. And it was so cool. And the students um, 
were appreciating, you know, so much Zach that they prepared a whole book that was called I went to Ralph to get a chicken. <laughs> and and they started with the same sentence and you know their uh, like their text, you know, was so like surprising because everyone did something different. Yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah. And I remember I had a difficult time finding this book because in Europe um, I couldn't find it uh, anywhere from the Amazon, from like from the UK Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, so I told them, you know, I can't get this book. I, I cannot find it. And then Zach sent it to me, you know, um, with the post and, and with a handwritten note. I was so, so glad to have have this book. You know, I was so it was so nice. Um, after I had read um, his book about the haiku. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, really, really glad to have one of like um, his method writers. Yeah, it's great. And, and, you know, Rattle came from that class. That was uh, Rattle itself was a class chapbook in like 1994. Uh, that was the first issue of Rattle. Uh, I can't, nothing's within reach, but it's a chapbook that, that he made um, of his class students' work, and that's what Rattle came from. Alan Fox just continued it throughout all these years. Um, and also on the shelf, I don't think you can see it. Um, can you see it? Those big books, I don't know, there's a, uh, yes. two shelves up. There's a big book there. There's two of them. There's a brown one and a white one. Those are his new books on poetry that came out not too long ago. So I think I want to have him as a guest. I had those books planning on having him as a guest. So that reminds me that I really should. Uh, we will. But anyway, let's hear your poem, Spartacus. Um, poem inspired mm -hmm. by the song of a frog in a swamp. I love that. Yeah. There were too many frogs when I tried to write my first line in the swamp. If only I thought I could create my poem away from the swamp. If only I could write like a well-written AI program created in a lab away from the swamp. If only I could learn words to fit all my feelings in the swamp. I wouldn't feel low when facing the swamp. I wouldn't feel at all the swamp. I wouldn't fall in the swamp. But at least it appears I wasn't alone in the swamp. There were many frogs in the swamp. Many frogs, making a lot of noise, were jumping into the water of the swamp. In the darkness of the swamp, the street light lights up one of the frogs of the swamp. The frog sits like a king in a discarded plastic bag floating in the swamp. The frog does its vocal improv in this small swamp. The frog stops singing in the swamp, back to nothing, frogs in the swamp. Oh, that's great. I love that, Spartacus. Thanks so much for sharing that. I uh, appreciate it. Always a pleasure uh, hearing your work. Thank you. And uh, yeah, that was Spartacus Agnostorus with a poem inspired by the song of a frog in the swamp. And uh, yeah, and this is the book. There's two books this thick. That's why I haven't had them on yet, actually. These books are... Um, 600 pages long and I want to read them first and so I'm just waiting to have time to read them but this is Jack Grape's new book I'll show you the, the cover um, Spartacus you have to look back and see it later um, but it is um, Etherized Upon a Table The Story and Evolution of Modern Poetry is a study guide for the perplexed volume one and then there's volume two over there too by Jack Grapes here's Jack on the back um, right there 
And uh, so we do want to have him as a guest and talk about this book. But thanks for bringing that up, Sorticos, and thanks for being, uh, being on the open lines right now. Let's go uh, next to, let's see, do we have, um, yeah, Joan Menapace is here with her, uh, we have the poem. I just have to find her on the, wait, where'd Joan go? Well, Joan sent her poem and now she's gone. So if Joan comes back, we have, where's we at? I just, oh, yeah. there she is. There you are. Hey, Joan. Did you get it? I, <laughs> I sent did. it again. Yep, yep. Oh, I have it now. Okay. So this is a double abecedarian, which is a, that is, so an abecedarian is a poem where the first, uh, the first word in every line starts going mm-hmm. through the alphabet. So they're inherently 26 l- lines long. And it, so it's, you know, artifice, bang, color here. And then uh, a double, though, is you do the opposite from Z to A is the last letter of each line. So a really tricky form. It's tough to do these well. And this is a good looking abacadarian from a distance. Let's see uh, uh, how, uh, tell us anything you want about it before you read it. Uh, this is in response to um, the recent uh, states' legislatures um, legislating against uh, trans children's mm-hmm. ability, uh, capabilities to get health care and so forth. Um, I'm an ally and also the mother of a trans daughter. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's sort of topical. Yeah, definitely. Let's hear it. So I'll read it. A double abyssinarium forward. Artifice is implied when you strive to be a whiz-bang shapeshifter. Start with gooey color for foundation. Green, purple, neon pink. Spice the paradox. Don't be tentative. The successful are few. Eventually, your authentic self becomes the fave. Fathers may rave. Mothers wonder who is you. Genders get bent. You can't change that. How much is too much elastic? Stretch lycra, uber tight bindings. If you can pull it off, put it on, not only for theater. Just keep it up, even if there is a cue knocking around, left after the LGBT. The signs read, do not stop letting yourself be you. Don't go incognito. March proud in a calico, kimono, lace suit, or leather skirt. For soon, newly observant people, percipient millennium officials, will persist and ally with your fascinating schmick. Queers reveal all yourselves and rebut the religious Raj rubbish, say I. So take charge onward, power it on high. Tick-tocking, unapologetic ingredients of humor, red pepper chili and marshmallow fluff. There your spice dance, worry not. Instead, Xerox, film, record, mix it. Own your music. You stir, you season, rub and dub. Zest with a dusting of pretty, guilt-free aroma. Uh, great. Love that. Uh, you know, tough form and uh, really fun form and uh, important topic. Thanks for sharing that, Joan. Thanks for listening. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Hope you come back again soon. Thank you. It was uh, Joan um, Menapace with double abecedarian forward 
Um, let's go to another first-time caller next. Odd Writings is here, uh, also known as George. Um, he is an NFT poet who has um, poems in the uh, or a poem in the summer shift. George, are you there? Yeah, I get unmute. There you go. Yeah, here I am. Hey, <laughs> hey, George, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. Uh, my uh, my uh, my video part has been kaput for for many many a month. So <laughs> you're just gonna have the my 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 odd writings little thing up there. Yeah, no uh, problem. It's great to hear you though. Um, and where are you calling from? Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. Uh huh. And uh, yeah, this is the first time I've 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 listened to a, a couple rattlecasts. This is maybe my fourth or fifth one, and this is the first time I'm actually you know gonna be here on the live portion so uh i hope it i hope it goes okay yeah well uh, definitely i'm looking forward to this and your poem that's come out in the summer issue is a um um oh what is the word for it where it goes front and back and um yeah it, it it's a word unit palindrome palindrome so, that i always get the confused just the word recall with um yeah with, uh, yeah it, with uh, uh um at now I get the, the other word. <laughs> anyway, yeah, palindrome. So it's a, it's an entire long palindrome poem where it's read forward and backwards, which is just really interesting to see. Yeah, it's it's. But you know, there's there's you got to be do you got to do it word by word. There's a, there's there's somebody else, Anthony Etherin, who does actually letter by letter palindromes, which just totally blows my mind how he can pull that off. It's hard enough for me to to be able to pull off one of these word by word ones, mm -hmm. um, and I can just imagine I can just imagine how difficult it is to do do the other way. But um, uh, yeah, so so those are the kind of those are the kinds of poems I like. I like them because they're kind of puzzling and and uh, I don't know. I'm I'm a little I, I, I'm I, I just like weird things. I guess. <laughs> well, you are odd writing, so that makes yes, sense. That, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I see that. Good, glad we talked about it because this poem coming up is a another palindrome poem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, this is one I haven't made an NFT out of it. Um, I've mentioned it on a couple uh, Twitter spaces, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and it's it's short enough. I, I figured you know this might this might work for a rattle thing. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's hear. It. Okay. All right. Um, okay, here it goes. Cold comfort. Children cold. The comfort women bore. Snowmen. Drawns northward ever slowly, drunk the sun dead. Spirits, burning parents bothered, and hot and bothered parents, burning spirits dead, sun the drunk slowly ever northward. Drawn snowmen bore, women comfort the cold children. Yeah, it's great. I love that last line. It, it's sort of a, a great last line is the key to these poems, I think. And, uh, and the one in the issue has a great last line, too. That was Cold Comfort by uh, Odd Writings, also known as uh, George Pistana. Thanks so much for joining us, George. Thanks. Yep, talk to you again. Okay, later. But, yeah, and George is a regular, too, on the Poetry Space on Thursdays on Twitter, because NFT poets tend to hang out on Twitter. Um, let's see. Carla Schwartz is up next, I think, going in line now. Hey. hey, Carla, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. What an amazing night of poetry and um, and and uh, interview. And uh, I decided not to do my prompt poem that I sent you, but I sent you a link to another poem that just came out this week, um, which I actually wrote a f some time ago, uh, inspired by the metaphor dice uh, prompt that we had, you know, way back when there was a prompt from the metaphor dice. And um, 
so I had this poem and uh, I took out the metaphor, dice metaphor. <laughs> um, and uh, this is what is left. And I sent you a link to it, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah I have it right here. Yeah. The mouse okay, nesting good. in our grill. And, and the, that, yeah. that episode, if anybody wants to go back and check, was uh, Taylor Molly, who does the metaphor right. dice. Maybe right. around 100 or so, I think. Uh, episode number i'm not sure what but but yeah and he has these metaphor dice that he uses to um, teach metaphor to to kids in school and so you roll the dice and you make up a metaphor based on your dice roll it's really interesting and then that was the prompt so here the poem generated by that even though it's not included it doesn't matter because right poetry happened yeah exactly exactly (laughs) and so this is the mouse nesting in our grill on the vacant bed of iron slats blackened with years long use caked in rancid fat, drippings from bygone steaks, the grill tools stored in plastic, perfect for the mouse to shred and form a mattress for her brood. She's gathered bits of drying grass, crisp oak leaves and tangles of my hair discarded at the shower, all for cover, even though each day as one blurs with the other, she shelters there, lodged in darkness with her pups, eight of them, curled and pink, nursing at her teats, until one day I lift up the cover, expose the nest to the morning sun, surprising both of us. Her blissful rest turns panicked escape for the mouse and all her babes, as many can cling as many as can cling to her legs with one balled up dangling from her mouth. Uh, great poem and I'd love to know, you know, knowing where that came from. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Yep. Have a good night. You too. Yeah, Carla Schwartz with the mouse nesting in our grill. Um next let's go to Jerry Stephenson. Hey Tim, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing, Jerry? Getting in early I'm- today. Pardon me? Get in early. You got it. I know. I was snoozing. You woke me up. <laughs> Great show tonight. I like that girl. Wow. Great. Fabulous stuff. I don't have any visual for you, I think. Yeah, you don't. Uh, Do you want to? or, or you No, I, I'm cool with this. I'm having a technological breakdown. I sound like a <laughs> road to hell by, uh, what was I trying to artist that wrote 20 years ago? Yeah, my, just I'm watching you on the phone and a screen. Because something's not working right. So if you can just put up with a voice. Yeah, that's I'm totally sure. fine. And you have Spring Thaw as your poem, right? Spring Thaw, yeah. Just to get, I got a bit of background on this one. I grew up in the prairies, and curling's a big thing. Farming's over, fishing's over. Everybody goes to the curling rink for five months. Hmm. And they have a great time. And there's a one term you need to know what a hack is. And a hack is when they take, eventually they take a scotch to the ice, and an axe to it, smash, put a hack in the ice, so you put your foot in it to launch a curling stone. Hmm. That's where it comes from. Okay, Spring Thaw. And this is probably 1963-64 to set the timing, because there's a reason. This was a big thing being raised on the prairies, a.k.a. Bontspiel Thaw. In elder times, no refrigeration for curling rinks. Sheets of ice became puddle-ridden. Brooms, sliders, team sweaters, skips, leader of the team, witnessed the enlarging bodies of water drowning the hacks. Why, everyone that could make a team booked a long weekend off. The wheels of the economy paused. The good times clock, party clocks struck party by dogs barking, sir. When temperatures dropped to minus anything, broom slaps ice. 
Voices roar at rocks, harder, harder. Size diminishing rings, tease the button, tease the stone to the button. Oh, that's great. I think the dog likes the poem too, Jerry. He's, he's kind of excited. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, thank you for a great show, eh? Yeah, thanks so much. That's great. I didn't know that like hurl, curling was a recreational activity. I, I, I mean, I'm you know have so to admit my, my ignorance, but I assumed it was one of those older sports that people didn't really do anymore. So it's cool to hear that you actually go curling. I got, friends were phoning me on Sunday. This friend of mine, Jenny. Uh-huh. Jenny Eve lives in Winnipeg. They say, it's men's championships. You're on for the day? Huh? I, I forgot. What do you mean forgot? I said, well, it's, it's Easter. Who cares? It's men's champions. And that's what got me going on this, because when a thaw came early in the year, they shut down. Uh-huh. They couldn't have it anyways. Yeah, that's great. Well, great story. Thanks for sharing that, Jerry. Always a hey, pleasure. Hey, thanks, Tim. Yep. Take care. Good Bye-bye. Well, Jerry Stephenson with Spring Thaw. Um, next is Audrey Friedman. Hey, Audrey. How you doing? I'm good. Okay. Um, For this prompt, I chose the word grant. Uh Um, I'm in the middle of reading a a book of historical fiction, 1,000 White Women by James Fergus. Oh, interesting. It occurred to me um, how much they don't teach us in school, especially about Native American history. Mm -hmm. Reading historical fiction includes more than the curriculum. 1,000 White Women, James Fergus. I am reading about how Ulysses S. Grant traded women, granting the Cheyenne a most generous deal. He granted 1,000 white women to be brides, granted to tribesmen in exchange for 1,000 horses. Our government granted the natives the way to procreate and assimilate, and Grant promised women's reprieves to be granted from prisons and asylums. The Laramie Treaty granted the braves lands forever, or until gold was found in the Black Hills. However, the grants turned to ashes like rubbish in a Fire. Grant us, females, God, a future in which we write our lives, not grant, so we ensure ourselves a granted status higher than chattel. Oh, that was excellent. Great choice of that word, grant. One of those words can be used many different ways and uh, really flowed well through that word. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Audrey. Have a good night. You too. It was Audrey Friedman. Reading historical fiction includes more than the curriculum. Let us do... Oh, we have a first-time caller here again. Um, Mustafa Sarwar is here. Let me see. Oh, disappeared. Where'd it go? Thank you. Yeah, hello. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, From New Orleans. New Orleans. Excellent. Yeah, (laughs) first-time New Orleans caller, too. Oh, I'm so glad that uh, you gave me the opportunity to come. Uh, from my accent, you can understand that my English is great. This is my first language. I'm joking. This Sounds is my great. second. Sounds great to me. It's uh, it, better than me is my first language, probably. And <laughs> I don't have a second. So that uh, sounds good. Uh, I speak in Bengali. Uh-huh. Oh, excellent. Uh, you know, from Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the poem which I would like to read today is uh, Ghazal, uh, the Newton's Third Law. Okay, great. Uh, that sounds pretty, uh, you know, kind of contrasting, 
because Ghazalis basically love spiritualism and so on. Uh, from my background of Bangladesh, I was listening to Ghazal from childhood, in fact. Mm -hmm. That's my parents and brothers, sisters will all listen. And so, you know, I'm very familiar with, with the Ghazal structure. And uh, so I tried uh, to put physics into Ghazal. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. What I experimented. Mm -hmm. Now, to, you know, to, you know, I'll give a little introduction to my poem. Like you see that the, the contact frontier with NATO and Russia doubled after Finland joined with the NATO, uh, you know, in fact, a few days ago. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at a one-dimensional map, x-axis, and you plot that point, original length, that's almost like about 600 miles. Mm -hmm. Then the Putin attacked the Ukraine to reduce it. In, in other words, he will go reverse and bring it to zero. But guess what? It moved into the positive x-axis hmm. and it doubled. So that's action equal to reaction. Oh, really? That's yeah. Newton's third law. Hmm. Okay. And I tried with Gazal. Putin's unprovoked war of choice, no lights, death and darkness blacken. Newton appears from the heaven, never thought it would ever happen. NATO's might must be rammed, line of contact be cut and jammed. Putin's dreams are flattened, never thought it would ever happen. Finland squeezed like a lemon. It remained neutral and never brazen. Now, rich in mesh of neuron, got a coveted chance to plucken. Reactions, actions always get. Decrease and increase form a set, a mathematical set. Newton's law never slacken. In politics, how could it happen? The specter of Newton appear not apple tree, but in world affair. Action, reaction, happily, better. Never thought it would ever happen. That was great. Really interesting observation. And then uh, to put it as a guzzle is really cool, too. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good night. Hope you come back again soon. Yeah, I will. I'll keep on coming. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Until you accept my point. <laughs> <laughs> and then never again. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks. I hope hope we have you for a while at least. Take, take, take care. Have a good night. Okay, next up we have, I think, um, somebody, who is that? So, Monica Garg, I think you're, um, if you're going to be on the Zoom, um, shut down your stream. So, only watch it one place. I didn't mention that. Um, but there's a delay. Not all streams go at the same time. So, if you're still watching on YouTube or Facebook, but you want to come on the Zoom to share a poem, make sure you turn off Facebook and YouTube. Just X out of those windows and only only listen on Zoom if you're sharing a poem, I should say, because I heard myself in the background there. Um, and we'll get to you later, Monica. Um, next, though, we will go next in line, and we have Mike Bales. Good evening. I had to work a little late, but I made it. Yeah, hey, glad to make it. Always um, good to see you, Mike. I always like to kind of chill and get ready for these things but sometimes my life is kind of a life on the run 
Yeah, um, I hear you. I didn't repeat it every line, but the word I repeated was highway. It has to do with the four years and as a flagger and traveling for that. It, I, the poem's called In Every Story. Mm -hmm. I emailed it to you. Yep, I got it right here. Okay. In Every Story. The highway is broken as it has been for years. The highway is made of what's taken from the land. First driver in a lane of cars are stopped becomes a coincidental, coincidental friend, though our meeting brief. The highway itself is a story of those who've come and come from other parts of the state to reshape the land, and and a hotel becomes a haven for a day or a week. The owner of the hotel or his wife leaves a mint on the pillow to say welcome to this time and place along the highway. When coming back each day, I hear passing conversations of locals as I pass by the front desk about, about the goings on in this town. After a few days, I say, I love it here, but for how long? After all the lanes are reopened, I wear my reflective gear to a diner for a bite of food, People and people look to me. Work on the highway is the talk of the town. The highway is the essence of the landscape as it rolls through Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, or some other place where life is a play, people live along the way. And I miss, must admit, the highway is me. Oh, excellent. Great metaphor there and great use of that, that form for the poem. Thanks for sharing that, Mike, and every story by Mike Bales. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, have a good night. Um, let's see. I am trying to go a little quicker because we have uh, a lot of people still on the lines, and it's getting to two hours. Let's see Nate Jacob next. Hey there. Hey, Nate. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I've seen worse cases. <laughs> so uh, so what do you have to share with us? I did a uh, prompt poem. Uh -huh. a, uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned uh, a phenomenon called semantic satiation. Oh, with you. I love that phrase, yeah. So I went ahead and I wrote a poem about that. Oh, that's using, perfect. Yeah. Using the same word over and over. Uh, it's titled, Say Exactly What You Mean. Um, semantic satiation for everyone is a psychological phenomenon in which repetition causes a word or phrase to temporarily lose meaning for the listener. That could be a form of poem, you know? You could call it a satiation. <laughs> no. Not a bad idea, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let me read Say exactly what you mean. If you mean it and you mean for it to mean what it meant when first you said it, then say what you mean, but say it only once. I mean, twice at most. Saying it once means the most. Repeating it once means you really do mean it. But I never meant for you to doubt I'd caught your meaning. I mean, I could even say I know its meaning without you saying it. Do you know what I mean? I'm not trying to be mean, though by your troubled mean, I can see you now mean business, mean to correct what is wrong. I just no longer know what you mean. What could possibly need correcting? You say I've been mean. I don't know that word. No idea what you mean. Know what I mean? <laughs> that is great. That works really well. You do sort of get lost in the sea of the sound of mean. It is great. Yeah, that's a cool effect. I've never seen a poem quite like that. The brain does funny things. <laughs> it does. Thanks, Nate. Definitely you. a pleasure. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye. As a Nate Jacob with a, say exactly what you mean, a sa satiation, we're going to call it. 
Let's go to um, Jennifer Lee Wang next. We have a few people left. Right. Hey, Tim. Hey, Jen. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Um, so I, I'm bringing both the Poets Respond and the prompt poem. Uh-huh. A, a combo um, just in response to what happened, the ouster of uh, two of the Tennessee three. And um, the Tennessee had a totally completely a completely different poem in mind, but just Interesting. hearing that news yeah, who, who and being the, outraged. Who are the yeah. Tennessee three? I don't even know who that is. I, that's how um, so they were. Uh, what is it? They were the three Tennessee state reps who protested against gun violence, and oh. they were all reprimanded, and uh, they were placed on trial by their legislature. And um, two of them, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, the black men, were, uh, I think they were uh, basically evicted from, or expelled from uh, the state legislature. Oh, okay. And then the one who wasn't was Gloria Johnson. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, super unprecedented and just yeah, kind of outrageous yeah yeah i have to read more about that because i don't really know anything but yeah go ahead let's see it tell me what democracy yeah. looks like yeah yeah so i took the title from uh the, the chant that you often hear in protests. Mm-hmm. yeah about, tell me what democracy looks like this is what democracy looks like in america democracy is a brown paper bag deciding who leads rather than a paper ballot designed for democracy a flimsy common thing yet bringing democracy's decline to a climax. Two young black men selected by the process of democracy, ejected from their roles for engaging in another of democracy's processes, while the process of democracy in the state legislature spares their white comrade is what this charade of democracy has become. This representative democracy only represents a minority with the money to manipulate democracy, to silence voices and votes, while challenging democracy's results by screaming fraud and recount. This is what democracy looks like. Bodies of children killed by guns, forced gender, forced birth, and white supremacy. America's democracy is dying with them. Oh, that's a really interesting poem, especially considering that, um, that uh, what is it, semantic satiation that Nate Jacob was talking about. Yeah. How that sort of, we're kind of maybe, that might be the best metaphor for what's happened to our democracy, is like satiation, is taking it for granted until it doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, very mm-hmm. interesting poem to share here. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. Yep, thanks, Jen. So Jennifer Lee Swang with uh, Tell Me What Democracy Looks Like. Um, Next, we have Brian O'Sullivan. Hello. Hey, Brian. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing okay. been having internet problems, but I'm back. (laughs) Yeah, I think maybe there's something, uh, you know, in some regions or something, there's some issues. Because people in different places have been having a tough time and other people not. So I don't know what's going on. But Hmm. what, what have you got for us? So I've got a prompt poem. It has a weird title, which is Asian with a hyphen in front of it. Um, and it repeats the word document a lot. Uh, okay, let's hear another. I wonder if it's going to be semantic satiation or not. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, let's see. Okay, Asian. Um, in close, please find the document you asked for. I hope you'll find that it's a document you need. The document required by the DMV, the document for which the tax man cometh, the document that documents the diagnosis and the document that demands the drug or the document by which the deeds defended, or the document in which it is recorded that the documents broke your back and compass do you. And I hope you'll find the document of your dreams, the document drawn up by the first clock's hand, or the document by which the emperor donated, or the document that the queen purloined, the document that drove the locusts out, the document that caged the tyrant in, the first document ever Xeroxed, a document surely now minted, or the document in which it is recorded, that Alexandria's documents endured, or the document with the data to solve for why. 
I hope documents really meant to ask for this document and that it's not just another document in the continuing documentary of asking the wrong questions of building the house of documents. Instead, I hope we'll find a document that breaks the endless chain of documentation begetting documentation. <laughs> that's great yeah definitely that satiation's going on there it's funny that some of those poems have that and i love your uh your document <laughs> move. that's very clever thanks for sharing that brian thanks thank you <laughs> take care that's brian o'sullivan with asian uh two more up i think we have uh monica dobos i think here is that you monica yep hey, that's me yeah. how you doing monica <laughs> Oh, I'm doing great. You know, I have to I have to thank Alexis for um, the uh, it's now or never. If, if not now, then when uh-huh. uh, impetus. Yeah. Uh, I'm calling from Temecula, California. Oh, right down the road or down the hill. We um, could roll. We could roll that. <laughs> I'm originally from Romania. My son is Indian. My son is somewhere in the mix. And I wrote this in response to... Um, um, John W. Evans's uh, Rattlecast. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, the uh, Tennessee shootings as well. Mm-hmm. So here it goes. Yeah, let's hear it. I am, I'm nervous, but I'm going to try to do my best. Oh, you're going to be great. It's going to be great. Let's uh, hear it. <laughs> okay, all right. Do you like rain? I asked my husband of 15 years while liquid grapes pound on the car. Only in peak summer. I don't like cold rain. Well, you don't need to hang out and get drenched. You can just watch it from a distance, like a fair trade circus where no animals get hurt in training. Unlike marriage, I don't say that out loud. His wife got mauled by a bear. He's still a poet. She's dead now. Whose wife, he asks. I want Samose. John W. Evans, a rattlecast poet, his first wife. Wait, she got killed by a bear? He whispers and gives me that. Why do you have to bring this up with our son in the car lock? I'm hungry. Who wants samosa and some nice hot chai? I want samosa. Wait, who got killed by a bear? My son asks behind his outer space book. No one, Bunny. Just watch the rain. Enjoy the green. You can't ignore me. I'm 11 now, and I can hear way better than you. She left a husband and two little ones behind. Or rather, it did. Okay, now, who knows how many rings Saturn has, my husband asks. Do they mention it in your book, Betta? That bear must have been really hungry, Mom. The universe is not a beast. Tell that to Evans. Tell that to the six Tennessee moms who will never see their children again. I don't say that out loud. Vika, on the other hand, was sent to space on her own just so stupid scientists could test if living beings could make it out there. Of course she didn't make it. Who's Laika? asked my husband. People are cruel. The universe just is, my son flings his hands in the air. Okay, I'm going to order two samosa and gulab jamun, my husband adds. Divorce must be a hungry bear. I don't say that out loud. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, great dialogue there. Uh, what, a, what a clever son, too. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Monica. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much yeah, for having yeah, me. Yeah, I hope you can have a, come on again anytime. And you, you did great, too. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, bye. Yeah, that was on Monica Moo on here with uh, Do You Like Rain? I Ask My Husband of 15 Years. A couple people left. Uh, Tanisha Carr is next. Hey, Tanisha, are you there? Hi. Yeah. Hey, yeah, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So uh, what do you have that you'd like to share? Um, It's, it's the grieving policy. It's, this, it's the same as many of us. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to um, sort of process but at the same time 
Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so it's the grieving policy. Okay, go ahead. These states united in bullets through textbooks that will never write their young readers' lost lives. Little hearts. Into history, I trace time back to when the Second Amendment became a war on children. This, the history, it makes casualties of our future so casual, these falling leaves of newborn growth, a sick tree. The sun can't reach the weeping wombs watering its soil, birthing grief. The world watches as another child dies and a mother's cries. When the bell rings gunfire, terror in the frozen sea of eyes, the many, the many, isn't enough to force the bullets back through the barrel across the pull-down map along the back wall to the stone one of Congress. I imagine <clears throat> I must. These bright souls leave this plane floating on a cloud of Michael's electric blue light, swinging from tires and monkey bars, basketballs, lemonade, pizza, and all things worthy of youth in hand as a, a chorus of angels greet them, vibrating peace so they feel love. Yeah, I love that ending. And yeah, definitely a topic that we've been trying to cover here on the Rattlecast for so long because it just unfortunately keeps happening. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Tanish. Yeah. Yep, have a good night. There's Tanish Carr with a grieving policy. Uh, that's going to wrap up the show for today. Let's do the Saiku really quickly and then... um. Then I have two and a half hours to pack, take a shower, eat dinner, finish the audio version, and catch a plane. So we'll see if I can do that uh, to uh, New York City. But uh, let's see. So the prompt for this week is to... Oh, no. Wait. The Saiku. The Saiku for this week. It's based on the story right here. You know, I'm a baseball fan, as you might know. Coach some little league, play a lot myself. And uh, there's a study, climate change adding 50 homers a year in MLB study says, and I was really prepared for this to be like a garbage science study because there's this kind of thing where if you put climate change into a study, um, you know, it, it's um, bandied about, but it ends up being a terrible study. It happens all the time. This was actually done really well by Dartmouth. And they, uh, you know, 50 homers isn't, you know, 50 homers per year is not a lot in Major League Baseball standards. But it is like genuinely um, caused by the uh, lack of the less air density that warmer air has. Um, they've isolated all the variables, and uh, climate change is actually doing that. So very interesting to see that. My haiku inspired by that is right here. Pop fly, lost in the blue of the sky these Saturdays. Pop fly, lost in the blue of the sky these Saturdays. That is my Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's been a really fun one, as it always is. The prompt for next week, inspired by Alexis Roan Fancher's love of photography and using her phone, like she said, uh, to take pictures throughout that great book, Brazen. Uh, write an ekphrastic poem about a recent image in your camera roll. So, you know, most people have camera phones. Some people might not be. It might have a camera, probably. Um, find a recent photo that you've taken or one of the most recent ones. Write an ekphrastic poem about that, whatever it is. doesn't even matter if it's um, a fun poem. Find a, find a poem and find a picture and do that. That is your prompt for next week. And that is the show for this week. So next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be 
Julia Kolchinski-Dasbach. Um, Julia, you've seen her a bunch of times because she's had several Poetry Spawn poems. Um, I think three in the last year, um, including Mir in Ukraine, which is one of the most popular poems we published last year about the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine. And um, her most recent book is The Many Names for Mother. Um, she's got other books, too. Um, she's me the guest for Rattlecast number 190, Julia Kolchinski-Dasbach. Uh, Monday, April 17th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime. I should say too that uh, there's going to be no, or, uh, no critique of the week this week because I'm going to be in New York at the conference right then so we're skipping this week for the critique but uh, we'll be back next Friday a week from Friday with the critique of the week too um, but we'll be doing the poetry space um, over on Twitter if you're there from the NFT NYC conference uh, but anyway Julia Kolchinski does back next week Rattlecast number 190 uh, Monday April 17th the regular time 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific I'll see you then and I hope you have a great week in the meantime talk to you later Good night.